Today on Early Music Monday, we will take a deep dive into a piece by Tomas Louis de Victoria, and we'll talk about how to talk about music, which is kind of a tricky thing to do. This is Early Music Monday. So I just want to outline a little bit of the plan going forward. The plan. Kind of uh, give you guys a heads up of some of the episode structures that we'll have going forward. We spent a lot of time last year talking about, you know, music principles in general and the general effectiveness of early music or whatever or relativeness or how relative it still is or whatever the relativeness oh my goodness relativity and uh i was thinking about there we're gonna have a couple different kinds of episodes going forward we have a an episode series or what have you that will be called expanding the scope how different types of music could be considered early music or neo early re- early music which is kind of an oxymoron but is a real thing that I'm going to start neo early music and so we have expanding the scope trying to broaden the horizons definitions of what early music is and its influence and we'll talk about different genres of music then we're going to have episodes where we break down a piece of music or analyze one and talk about its construction very specifically and then we'll listen to it and we'll listen to it in fragments and we'll do all that kind of thing and uh, how to talk about it to the common person and for those of you listeners who are choral enthusiasts but may not be you know choral scholars yes um, then you can have a really great understanding of whoa I understand how that piece is put together that's really cool it's like a mini concert with program notes about one piece and then we'll have interviews as usual with different uh, choral rock stars and uh, early music rock stars and general musician rock stars and maybe some non-music rock stars for some secret gems of episodes that uh, you'll hear about in the future. But those are kind of the three types of episodes we're going to have going forward, and we'll, we'll have a lot of that. And we'll keep the Andrew special going, and we'll have other guests on regularly, and it's going to be really fun uh, moving forward. So today, for today's episode, we're going to start with kind of a, a peace breakdown, a breakdown episode, not a mental breakdown episode, We don't have any of those, just a peace breakdown episode. So buckle your seatbelts because it's going to be zoppity. I remember when I first sat in uh, my, I don't even know what class, but I, all of my music classes in my undergrad, sitting there trying to analyze a piece of music outside of just harmonic analysis because I was a theory nerd who was like a chord speller. And that's basically the only way I knew how to look at any piece of music ever. And I felt kind of like 
Andy Bernard on The Office. There's this episode where he's he's showing this bootleg version of this film featuring Jack Black uh, to Jim and Pam. And Jim and Pam are talking about Pam's parents' relationship and how it's not good and, you know, Pam's dad moved out and all this stuff. And they're talking about that. And Andy thinks they're talking about the film. And he's like, Jim and Pam are like movie geniuses. They're catching things that are way over my head. And then at the end, Pam's like, maybe love affairs look different to the people who are inside of them, to the camera, and Andy's behind her and just throws papers in the air like, okay, I suck. And then it goes to a talking head of Andy's like, I'm not insightful enough to be a movie critic. Maybe I can be a food critic. This muffin tastes bad. Or an art critic. This painting is bad. (laughs) And uh, that's the way I always felt with music. I'm really good at music analysis. This piece sounds bad. Or that instrument player sounds bad. Or that choir sings bad. And that was like the extent of it. (laughs) I didn't... Or those chords are cool. Chirp, chirp. Like, that's the end. That was the end of my analysis. And I don't know. It's just tricky. So I think, and the interesting thing is, is if you ask, I ask my students who are hardcore appreciators of music, but they're not. And even my, so from my student who is in my study hall, who is not a music person, but likes music, all the way up to the nerdiest of nerdy future composer, choral, conducting, voice major, whatever, and every type of student in between, if I asked, what makes this piece good? Or, tell me why you like this piece. And they're like, I really like, it just sounds so cool. (laughs) Or it just, the dynamics are awesome. That's, That's a little bit more advanced, intellectually educated answer. Or my favorite, I don't know, it just is cool. The, no, the way the notes like interact and and the way and then they try to sound really smart and use words that they've been introduced to but don't really know what they mean so they'll say things like yeah and just the way that the the harmonies move and and you sit there and you nod your head like yes young padawan yes <laughs> you are on to something and uh but that's the way I was so i i just sit there and smirk because not because I'm laughing at their ignorance, but because I know what it's like to not have any idea how to put into words the musical elements. Because music is really complex and abstract. You know, if you think about language, it's this symbol that has a sound. And then you put several of those symbols together to make different sounds. And then those sounds are associated to some sort of meaning. It's a really abstract skill. And then you take that to music of there's this sound that lines up with this other sound and it has some sort of 
meaning but the meaning is not necessarily clearly defined and it can mean several things it's just even more abstract so it's really hard to put into words music so one of the one of the reasons why my music in the renaissance class at BYU taught by Dr. Johnson who is brilliant uh, he taught Dr. Steven Johnson he taught my music in the renaissance class and even though he's a Mahler scholar which I just can't not say I can't say it enough times the Mahler scholar Dr. Steven Johnson Mahler scholar who as a Mahler scholar studied the music of Mahler and he became a scholar of it and now he's a Mahler scholar just try it you say it you say it say it to yourself out loud right now Mahler scholar it's so fun try it yeah it's pretty amazing right so anyway but he's the one and even though he taught you know the musicology faculty at BYU was a little short-staffed at the time and so he taught our music in the renaissance class and the interesting thing is, is you'd expect that class to talk about the high renaissance a lot, but we focused on, and I'm really grateful for this, and this is why I fell in love with early music, is we studied the transition between the late medieval period into the renaissance, and we had to write about, okay, what are the stylistic differences between the medieval time period and the renaissance? And, you know, Dr. Johnson, I mean, it was... It was big kid school for sure because you know you sit in class and your tests are three hours long and there's two questions how did this piece Nuper Rosarum Flores by Dufayi represent the transition between the medieval time period and the renaissance time period go ahead write for an hour and a half and he would always say I highly recommend you take the full hour and a half and we would just sit there like uh okay and yeah you'd sit in the testing center and you'd write those little blue books and you'd write and write and write and you'd have to have the you couldn't have the score with you so you'd have to have it know it like the back of your hand and but I fell in love with that music in doing so because I because well for a couple reasons the music was so incredible but then I was also taught how to write about music for the first time, how to really talk about it for the first time. And I understood, I was introduced to and experienced what about early music, the, the, the building blocks and the foundational elements that early music has that serve as the foundation for the rest of western musical history it was just like this you know trifecta of impactfulness so it's ironic that a Mahler scholar Dr. Stephen Johnson taught me about early music and contributed in a very real way to the birth of Sound of Ages which is I'm sure he's just kind of like cool <laughs> but yeah, I love Dr. Johnson and he's very he's very nice and but very uh very intense as a Mahler scholar I'm sorry it's just like it doesn't even fit I just saying it okay anyway 
The reason why is because I had never been introduced to Jan LaRue's book. Jan LaRue is a musicologist, and he wrote um, he wrote a very impactful book for analyzing music. He's and it it's you know you have Shanker analysis, which talks a lot about form and harmony and things, and then there there's several different lenses, so to speak, through which to look at music. And, but the interesting thing about Jan LaRue's analysis lens or methodology is that it really is, if you, if you remember it as, okay, this is a musicologist lens of studying music and its role in time, and then you think about okay, how would what would a theor a theoretician, or a theorist, music theorist, or composer, what would their analysis look like, or what would a performer's analysis lens look like? And for me personally, I think Jan Larue, his analysis is the most beneficial for being able to look at the smallest minutial elements or as he would call them perspectives of the music while also keeping you open to all the other types of analysis and so because it's kind of like what Andrew Maxfield talks about when he talks about how getting away from the nomenclature just labeling things and so his book is called uh, guidelines for style analysis and so if you're interested Jan LaRue guidelines for style analysis it's a really good book and the reason why I love it is because I can do a really 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 watered down version of this for students who are brand new to music I've done it for my junior high students when I taught at the junior high you can go really in depth and teach it to graduate students. You can teach it, you can, if you're doing program notes for a concert, you can use elements of this style analysis guide to kind of break down the music to the common person who's not educated at the college level on music nomenclature and music uh like the ins and outs of the construction or performance of music, I guess, for lack of a better word. So I could take this and I'm going to explain it as if I was talking to my dad or my wife or my brother or any number of people in my very close inner circle who are not musicians. Because... If I can explain it to them, then I can explain it to anybody. So, we're going to use the piece Amicus Meus by Tomas Louis de Victoria, or as my hilarious wife so lovingly calls him, Angelina. <laughs> I can't. Oh, it's so funny. Before we start, there's a couple things to keep in mind. So, LaRue breaks down the style analysis 
And the purpose for this analysis is to make sure that we're observing the small elements, figuring out how it works, and how the movement of the piece is achieved because music is, it, it exists in time. So you can't experience, you know, you can't experience it like you do a painting where you could sit there and look at it and it exists forever. But music is a linear experience. So you're, so how does, how does the mu- the music move and how does it tell its story? And LaRue goes through how to analyze that. And he, breaks it down basically into again if I'm doing the cliff note version of the cliff note version of the review of the book this is kind of what it is of you know you have sound what sounds are happening and under sound you you talk about the media what instruments or forces musical forces or do you hear what are the dynamics what are the textures now, musical texture is a big deal, and we can have and are going to have several episodes where we talk about texture because I think musical texture is one of the most fascinating elements about music. And it, I just, I don't even understand it yet. I'm like, it's one of those things that I could probably end up spending a lifetime studying and figuring out. But this idea of texture, you know, is the music high? Is the music low? Is it, are there a lot of things happening at once, implying a thick texture? Or are there just a couple voices with a lot of space between them, a thin texture? Is, are all the notes happening simultaneously? Or does each part have their own line? Or is it like a call and response with an echo? There are very specific terms that music musicians will appreciate. Polyphonic, monophonic, homophonic, antiphonic, etc. But if you break those down besides just thinking about the word, but really what is the sound doing? It's kind of similar to the whole choreo- choreography. Oh my goodness. Choreography of sound episode that we did with back with Andrew Maxfield and Philip Lasser and such. But that texture idea is really is really cool. There's so many other descriptors that you could do to define the texture. What are the timbre of the instruments, the timbre of the voices, that sort of thing. You know, are are the singers singing really bright? Are they singing with a darker voice color do is it harsh singing on purpose is it really smooth and legato is it is it bouncy and staccato marcato uh, you know all of these things of how is the sound acting and then you get into the next category after sound is harmony and what is the harmonic language do you you know if you think about debussy it's a very specific harmonic language or the classical era with Mozart and Haydn and the classical era composers all had a very specific idea about harmony then or or the romantic era or the renaissance or 20th century harmonies doesn't have to be tonal or functional harmony just how are the sounds stacking vertically what sounds are happening simultaneously and what does that sound like 
you know, when I teach my students, I, I let them talk about emotion words. What emotions do you feel because of the chords? I say chords a lot um, because that's something that they can understand. And so what chords are happening and how do they make you feel? What kind of emotion does the, do the chords or the harmonies have? Um, and then you have melody, melodic shape. How is the melodic? And again, you can get as super music nerdy as you want. Like how long is, what, what makes up, how does the melody make a phrase? What makes the phrase happen? What is it? What does that even mean? A phrase. When you think about a phrase structure in a sentence, when you're speaking, you know, your voice inflection goes up and down to create different emphasis or different subtext, different emotions, etc. But, you know, if, if I were to ask a question like this, <clears throat> so, Dwight, what did you do today? What did you do today? That my voice falls down? That's not usually typical question material. What did you do today? Today, you know, there's this upward motion. Did you really? There's this upward motion in a question or a comma that will then be finished with a period. The period falls off, the comma kind of lingers in the air. So we have all that inflection, and that's very primal, right? And something that I was um, uh, talked to Barlow Bradford, he's the head of the choral department at the University of Utah about is this idea that gravity influences music. It's that primal sense of rising and falling. And how does the melody reflect that? You know, Or you can just talk about basic things. Does the melody jump around a lot or is it really smooth? So you can break it down to someone who's not familiar with music and you can have them listen and they can say, yeah, the music or the melody stays on the same note a lot and then kind of like surrounds that note. You could Again, as simple or as complex as you want, but melody, melodic line. Then after the, the melody, you have, so we've talked about sound, harmony, melody. Then we have rhythm. And the rhythm, uh, again, can get really complex. What does the meter sound like? What does the pulse feel like? What does the, how does the music exist in time? And then you could get into, okay, well, if you're looking at the score, what are the surface rhythms like what what kind of notes do we have? Do we have fast rhythms, slow rhythms? And then what's the metric pulse? But that whole thing of driving the phrase, because melody and rhythm are kind of intertwined, but you can break them down into their, again, he doesn't talk about them, doesn't use the word elements, even though I've used those words before, but he uses the word perspectives because it can isolate without completely detaching it from the other musical perspectives. I almost said elements again. And uh, it's really cool to think about, okay, well, how does the rhythm tell us the movement of the piece? And uh, the next subcategory would be form. And he, he doesn't use form, he uses growth. Um, but it kind of ruins the acronym that's really fun to say that you're going to hear me say in a second but uh, the growth of the piece. And I think that this is the part that I had. So quick story about studying form. Form, there's like formal analysis and Schenker analysis, which is anyway, but there's all kinds of things where 
you look at the form of a piece. We've even had an episode, two episodes called WTF, What's the Form, where we talk about the form of a piece. And we've talked about it a lot, about how to break down just, okay, this is this type of form, A, B, A, B, C, A prime, whatever. And uh, that's a really kind of reductive way to look at it. Because, again, you're trapped into these names, these label boxes of, well, if it's if it's called this, then it has to look like this, the end. Which is kind of hard. And so, quick story. I went to two semesters, a full year at BYU-Idaho, and then I served my church mission for two years, and then I came back and finished my degree at BYU-Idaho. And I took Music Theory 1 and Music Theory 2, before my mission, and then music to theory three and four uh, when I got home. Before my mission, the curriculum was that you learned a lot about form. There was whole units on form in theory three. Then while I was on my mission, they changed the curriculum and put that form unit and that deep dive into form into theory two. So I literally was never taught form and I just kind of was, it's always been something where I've been kind of like, uh, I don't, is that Rondo? Is that, is that rounded binary form? I don't even know what the heck that is, which is probably a bad thing to admit to hundreds of people on a music podcast, but something that I actually, but this is the point, is that form traps you into like it acts like this and it has to look like this instead of talking about well how does that contribute to the growth of the piece over time because again music exists in time how does the piece exist over time and when you talk about form I really like teaching my students about form without any of those words and yeah that might and I tell them straight up like there are terms for specific types of form that if you're going to take an entrance exam, you're not going to get those from me. That's a blind spot I have. You're going to have to just go look those up on your own. And I give them where to go look, but we don't talk about it that way. We talk about the actual nature of the form and how that contributes to the growth of the piece. It's really cool. And that's something that I'm just still learning and is like a relatively new concept for me to think about it in those terms. And it's really cool. Like it's changing the way that I look at music in general, any, any type of music, any piece at all. It's really, really awesome. So that's form. Then the last section is text. And how does the text shape the growth? And this is exclusively kind of a choral subcategory that was added um, later, but, and I actually can't even remember. I don't even think it's in the original. There might be a sub category thing in the actual LaRue text about text, but we we added it in our class as text because it was we were in the Renaissance talking all everything we talked about was about choral. So in this setting we would have text and how does the text and the music relate? How is the text influencing the music vice versa? Whoa, I just kicked the trash can. And uh so you put all those initial letters, sound, harmony melody, rhythm, form, text, and you get schmurfed. 
And so we schmurfed music all the time. And so we would, I teach my mus- my students, and I was taught to schmurfed things and how, how to schmurfed, how to schmurfed. And so we're going to break down this piece a little bit by Victoria along these guidelines. And if whether you are an early music scholar and an early music expert, first of all, why haven't you reached out to me to be on the show? Because you know more than I do. Or if you are just a music enthusiast, choral enthusiast who loves choral music, we're going to listen to the piece first in its entirety, and then we'll listen to small fragments and kind of break it down. And we're not going to do a ton. We could spend hours on this, but we're not going to, of schmurfting this piece of music that's fairly simple, but you'll see how much there is to glean from a piece of music just from looking at it through these different perspectives. So this is Sound of Ages. And I, okay, another thing, this piece, this video is on Facebook. It's on YouTube. Amicus Meus by Tomas Luis de Victoria, Spanish Renaissance composer. This video we recorded in this church at St. Mark's Cathedral in Salt Lake. And... This recording is pure luck, pure luck, because I just, I borrowed friends' microphones. I hadn't taken any sort of private lessons like I have since in audio engineering or whatever. I knew a little bit from my, from my high school band days in the rock band, but I didn't really know anything. And I placed the microphones a certain way at a certain distance, and it, it is the best one of the best quality recordings we've ever made. It is the best quality recording we've ever made where I did it all myself exclusively. And the reverb hits just right, and I didn't add any. I don't get it. I don't get it. I tried so much since then to duplicate it, and I can't do it. So pure luck recording, beginner's luck is a real thing. We'll talk about rookie smarts. Oh, I need to put that on my list. Rookie smarts. It's a really good book. Okay. And, uh, but that all that being said, here is Sound of Ages performing Amicus Meus back in 2018, 2018, early 2018. I can't speak. I will shut up now.
Okay. Man, the song slaps, as the cool kids say. It slaps. Which means it's really good, and it just... Uh, I feel like the imagery is there's this part of your brain where it's like, mm, good vibes, good feelings, and this song slaps that part of your brain real hard. But it's like a good slap, you know? Pretty sure that's what it means. Anyway, so if we break this down in terms of sound, this piece is fairly straightforward. In terms of sound, it is four-part Soprano, alto, tenor, bass, singers. This recording, there's four sopranos, three altos, three tenors, and four basses. So that's 14 singers. Um, the, yeah, acapella can be accompanied by organ, but this recording is not. So the sound, and it's mostly polyphonic, but there's these, it's not, I wouldn't call it dense polyphony in terms of lots of really busy action independent of each other each part is independent for sure but very closely related and acting with other voices there's lots of duetting that happens and so you hear it uh here's a short clip where you'll hear you know The altos and sopranos are kind of doing their own thing, and then you hear the men singing in these thirds together, and then it kind of goes back and forth, so you hear this duetting. Here's a short little 10-second clip. You'll hear some duetting that's right towards the beginning of the piece. So that contributes a lot. That happens often where you'll hear this, you know, duet. And I'll put a link to the score in the show notes. You can get it on CPDL. It's free. But if you're listening to this while you drive or doing something else, you're not really looking at the score. That's okay. You can listen. You can go back and listen to the whole piece after this little analysis and hear all these parts in context. Um, But... um, it's yeah, it's just really awesome. So there's that that little bit of switching texture between duet. Now I would also say that the texture is relatively thin, and you can hear the text coming through really clearly because of the way he passes the text from one part to the other, and how he uses the repetition of the text to make it really clear. That's one thing that sets Victoria apart, I think, from a lot of his counterparts uh, in other countries. Well, Cardozo's kind of in Victoria's camp too. Of, um, and and this is a very very much a Palestrina thing, which he's who he's studied with. But the text comes through so clear, which is what the church was really kind of adamant about: is that this was for the service. So the text comes through so clear. It's awesome. And that's partially from the way he sets the text, which we'll talk about, but also part of the texture of, you know, each part has its range and its place in the tessitura, which is its average range, so to speak. And 
the space between notes um, and then between those parts. It's not super far away, but it's not right on top of each other. Or there's not a lot of this voice crossing where you can't tell the difference between which part is which, which happens a lot in... And there's nothing wrong with that, but that contributes to sometimes a muddying of the text because you lose which part is singing it and where exactly the line falls or like individual line where exactly that line is moving so it's very cool the dynamics can be rather extreme the cool thing about renaissance music is that the dynamics aren't prescribed so why would he repeat something probably for significant meaning purposes so are you going to make it louder or softer you should do something to emphasize that so the dynamics that we chose kind of tell the story uh of the text the text being well we'll get to text at the end but i'll we'll, we'll analyze it but here's the text in its fullness english translation the text comes from uh, one of the Tenebrae Responsories, which is service music, which is another podcast, by the way, uh, during Holy Week. So this comes from the Thursday of Holy Week, and this is the translation. The sign by which my friend betrayed me was a kiss. He whom I kiss, that is he. Hold him fast. He who committed murder by a kiss gave this wicked sign. The unhappy wretch repaid the price of blood and the end, and in the end hanged himself. It had been better for that man if he had not been born. The unhappy wretch repaid the price of blood and in the end hanged himself. So we've talked about this text before. We've broken this piece down before with Andrew Maxfield. But the reason why I'm bringing it up again is because now it's a chance to look at it through this style guide. This new this style analysis of not thinking about it just in terms of line, where's the line, whose line is it anyway, but in looking at all the elements that make this piece what it is. So that text is really poignant and just like soul crushing. And how does he achieve that through the sound, through the harmony, or through the dynamics, through the textures? It's really cool how he uses different moments to change the texture. So the first example, if I'm if I were speeding kind of through this a little bit, kind of doing really high level 10,000 foot view, the first time it gets to we have this new texture, it he cadences to this open cadence. So you can already see how interwoven and interconnected these sections are. Okay, well we have this cadence and then the the texture changes that's very formal this one this sentence of the sign by which my friend is betrayed or my friend betrayed me was a kiss he whom i kiss that is he hold him fast he committed murder by a kiss gave this wicked sign boom cadence that's the whole first section and then the texture changes to all of a sudden now we lose the bass the bass voice disappears. And then it comes back in for a little bit, and then we cadence again on this half cadence, which, and anyway, it doesn't resolve, it doesn't cadence on this. It, it feels like a comma or a question, which could be used in the m melody section of the conversation, but you get this text. Then all of a sudden you get two voices 
just the soprano and the alto. So all of a sudden, these treble voices come so pure, and the notes are longer, and it has this very sweet, ethereal sound to it, and all of a sudden, that's the sentence, it had been better for that man if he had not been born. Wow. That's like a really intensely dark texture, like dark sentence. How many children? I wish I'd never been born, you know, when they're really upset. But if you think about that in terms of like adults saying that and meaning it, that's kind of frightening. But he juxtaposes that with this opposing texture of high voices. And it's almost to me like the angels are singing this, um, which makes it even more depressing when you think of it that way. It's even worse sounding because it's these angels singing it versus the lower voice kind of being grounded on the earth or, you know, maybe sub-earth, the, the image of hell. So, and they resolve in perfect unison. And the cool thing about counterpoint in general but about these lines is well we'll talk about when we get to melodic line huh one thing at a time so there's the texture the textures you know all the voices at once then there's a cadence and then all of a sudden there's three voices for you know one two three four five six measures and the bass comes back in and it's pretty high for the basses and the tenors the altos are kind of in the upper middle of their range and the sopranos are in kind of the middle-ish of their range, but the men being up high, it's very, it gets closer in space. The men being up high, and it really adds to the intensity of it till the end of that cadence before the duet. And then it repeats that section till the end. So it, it which is part of the form as well, but it, it had, and that's a text thing and a form thing, but it, the textures jumping around like that really gives it diversity and draws your attention to the text. Even if you don't know what it means, you're sitting there and you're listening to Latin and you're like, what? And then you're Scott Kavanaugh, my dad, who says, just sing in English. And, uh, but, but if, if you had the translation in front of you, those words would really jump out, whether you realized it or not, or realized why, because the texture shift is so stark. It's really cool. Okay, then we get into harmony. Shh, we're on the shh of the schmurft. So with the harmonies, you have this minor sonority, the minor mode. And you have what a lot of us would call melodic minor or harmonic minor, which definitely was not really a concrete concept yet, but this idea melodic minor implying that we talk about it in the the melody section but this minor sonority i asked my students the other day how would you describe minor versus major the quality of those without using the words happy or sad and i got some really interesting answers like steady firm solid uh complete clear bright dark and I think it's because when you're in a minor sonority, you have this smaller interval from, you know, if you number all the pitches of the scale from one to three is minor, which is smaller. 
in distance. And then on top of that interval, you have a bigger interval. So you have this upside-down pyramid, so to speak. And so it feels less stable. And it feels less clear or bright. And so it, I think maybe that instability of having a smaller interval, which if you were to build a pyramid, you know, you have the bigger stones on the bottom, the smaller ones on the top. Maybe that primal sense of smaller on the bottom, big on the top, creates that sense of instability, which is to us sad. <laughs> but the harmony fits perfectly with this sense of dark hopelessness. Um, so yeah, it's pretty straightforward. We could go deeper, but we're I'm, I've been blabbering long enough. I don't think we need to. On. Onward and upward to melody. Now, the melody is really cool. So if you listen to this beginning, I'm going to show you the beginning because there's a lot of what we would call contrary motion. And so the soprano and the alto are literally moving out directly opposite of each other until they get to it. They start in unison and they move outward until they get to an octave and they move back together. And so there's a lot of this really cool contrary motion, and the melodic shape is very stepwise, and this very clean gravitational arc. It jumps up, then it kind of falls down. It steps up and then steps down in kind of this equidistant arc. It's very, very beautiful. And every once in a while it picks up in rhythms, but not very often. So here's that opening where you hear the two treble parts stepping outwards from each other. And as you can hear, it, what it does is it gives each of those parts a very distinctly individual line identity counterpoint counterpoint it's very cool that sort of melodic shape is really indicative of how it works now you combine that with the perspective of harmony and you see that it's it's in this minor mode right we have this minor mode but it borrows notes from the major mode occasionally which is you know as we go forward in your in your music class you hear this is harmonic minor versus melodic minor and i always think how do you write a piece in melodic minor so every time you use that note it has to be that like i didn't i was just so caught up in the identification that i didn't real and i i must not have either realized or been taught in the way that it's like there's moments where you use this this is a little moment or element or perspective, I guess, that you can borrow this from another mode and create this quote-unquote melodic minor sound or harmonic minor sound, but you don't have to stick to it. That doesn't mean, like, a piece isn't static. It's not in that thing the whole time. So you have these moments where it borrows notes from the major mode to give it this very clear harmonic language, but it's very still smooth melodically because those intervals you know, as you're stepping up, if you raise it a half step from the minor to the major, that makes, that leads you upwards. So you have this sense of leading up. The melody pulls, that gravitational pull up, and then as you go down, you flat it, and it becomes 
minor again, but that gravitational pull pulling you back down. So very natural steps leading you a certain way. The pull is up, the pull is down, and the melody kind of follows that really well. It's really cool. So that's kind of the idea behind the melody. If we get to the rhythm, if you look at a page of this, the rhythms are fairly slow, and you can feel that and hear that prolonged agony of slower rhythms and slower meters. There's this moment where, you know, there's a couple of quicker notes occasionally. You hear the tenors go up. The basses do it. The soprano, they all do it kind of. And the altos and tenors have this really cool moment where they do it together. But other than that, there's no eighth notes. Those are the only, like, really quick notes in the whole piece. And then there's some... So there's lots of whole notes, lots of half notes. And then as we get to that cadence, that ending right at the end that ends up being introduced earlier, then it goes to the duet, and then it goes into that again and ends with that big, huge moment. You have the sopranos doing this quarter note run up and right back down. It's You can see it on the page if you're looking along at the score, you look at measure 35, it just runs up, runs back down. The basses are going the opposite direction. The tenors have this huge leap up to unison with the altos and and then kind of step down. It's so, and the rhythms in the soprano, while the other parts are, the rhythms are the same length as they had been before on average, the sopranos have these quicker rhythms, more quicker rhythms closer together um, in that shape than any other time. So I'll play this ending really quick so you can hear this rhythmic almost rush to the end. So rhythm, now I'm going to, these different perspectives here of rhythm, form, text, I want to come, I want to talk about these and maybe there, there are three different elements, quote unquote, or perspectives to look at it, but they all contribute, I think, in equal part to the driving force of how the piece moves in time. And so I think that, you know, when you look at LaRue's style analysis guide and you look at kind of what he's talking about and what the the big picture is, you think about how as the music progresses, what drives it forward. And that's a really hard question. And I think that's the sense of line, again, this is not the first time we've played this episode on the show. We've talked about this piece a lot. It's one of the few recordings Sound of Ages has, which is, spoiler alert, why we're using it. But, and the piece itself is one of my favorites because of those reasons. But it really does. It shows this piece particularly really has this really good sense of driving forward without being rushed at the same time 
And so I think the rhythm plays a big part of that. As we've just talked about, you know, the, the, the running rhythms to the end, so to speak, the suspension of the harmonies, you know, you have this counterpoint of one part moves while the other part holds, and then it resolves down, and then the other part moves while the other part holds, and back and forth, this kind of tension release of the harmony, and then the form of all the parts together, and then it's you know, the three upper parts, then the basses come in with this big leap of a fifth, which is Star Wars. Bum, ba, da, da, that one to five idea that plays such a specific role in later centuries of leading us back to one, but that leaping up of a fifth to the, to the, to that note, which is what we would call the dominant, uh, which didn't, again, really exist. But it's functioning kind of like that. It's very forward-thinking in that way. Uh, All of that stuff serves to drive the piece forward and descending to this cadence then, that that what they call Phrygian half cadence, the the step of E-flat down to a D, the smallest musical... The smallest space between two notes in Western music is that half step, and it kind of descends by that half step. Chandit. While the tenors have that same half step descending thing up there. It's just amazing. So, and then where is that in the text? Again, in the end, hanged himself. Hanged himself, descending. That half step descending is very sorrowful sounding, pulls us gravitationally down with the person hanging himself, which is very graphic, but, and all of that leads to that, which then, you know, this piece is a part of a larger set, and it would go on then into the next piece or next set of text, but I think that form is, the form is driven by the text, the text determines everything, and that idea of Whatever the text, the subtext is, whether it's, let's, you know, revenge, justice will be served, or the pursuit of money will lead to bad things, or wickedness is not happiness, etc., etc. Whatever you take the subtext of the text to be, that music drives us there really strongly. But not in like a rushed or forced way. It's really organic. And I think that has to do with gravity. So the shape of the melody drives us forward. The the It's almost like a linear gravity with rhythm where you have, you know, the peaks of the phrase get a little faster and then they slow down as they as they uh, get towards the end of the phrase. The, um, the sections are the proportionate length, right? The duet section isn't quite as long as the section where all four parts are singing together. And so you have this golden ratio thing going on too. So there's all kinds of things in the form and in the text and in the rhythm, harmony, melody, that imitate nature. And that's what drives the piece forward and why it's so brilliant in its own right. It's freaking awesome freaking awesome so that's kind of again form you know this text all together cadence this text upper three parts basses come in intensity better had that man not been born he went and hung himself than a duet now this little soprano alto duet is really cool because this is the part that says it had better 
it had been better for that man if he had never been born. And that, to me, is the darkest, like the darkest part of the text of... I, I can't put it into words because it's so... It's just the most depressing, hopeless, dark part of, like, your actions are so bad that at the judgment day, it would be better if you had not been born and made those mistakes than be here and made these choices. Ugh, it's just, like, gut-wrenching. And instead of having, you know, the darker, lower, grounded, earthy tone, like voices, bass tenor, or, or you know, maybe you'd think of those voices as being symbolic of hell, which is perhaps where you would assume this person named Judas has been moved to in the afterlife, even though we don't really know any of that. Then we you know, you'd, you'd suspect maybe if you were going to be obvious that that's where you would put that. But think about how much more powerful it is to put it in the upper voices, which usually in this time period would be symbolic of angels or heavenly things and kind of a musical representation of the heavens or these upper voices that are very sweet and smooth and clear uh, and beautiful, but how much more depressing and poignant does that make it of this is what you could have been, but your choices led you elsewhere. And th the harmony also changes in this to a major sonority. It kind of moves to this, without getting too technical, moves to this major or brighter or clearer or more steady uh, sonority and harmonic language, which is, you know, we didn't talk about that in the harmony section, talk about it in form, but we could have talked about it over there. Anyway, it's all connected. Ah, rambly. Sorry. Okay, here's the duet. Ah, so amazing. That is Savannah Porter and Jennifer Heater, uh, soprano and alto, singing that duet. Okay, I have rambled for a really long time, but I hope that you, for those of you who, again, are not necessarily wanting to go get a degree in music, but really are passionate about understanding art and culture and music, hopefully this gave you some tools for understanding the your own favorite music a little bit better and you can listen to songs on the radio and be like yes it's a very good use of texture shift by Miley Cyrus and that her use of harmony really accentuates the form which can be classified as a simple strophic form because we all know that everyone wants to listen to music on the radio like that I do just kidding so and for those of you who are music professionals, maybe this will serve as a good reminder on how we can perform our art better 
Is there anything in the music that the composer implied, but that we can add like 10% to through dynamics, through tempo change, through uh, like the timbre of our voice, through whatever, to accentuate that and make it a little bit more obvious to the audience? We don't want to be heavy-handed, but we can help the audience come to the music by and bring it to them by doing those things versus just hoping they get it. Um, so teaching them to recognize the subtlety is, uh, is really cool. So hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And now if you want to go back through after having talked about all those things and listen to the piece in its entirety again, you can do that and be sure to, uh, to listen to the piece through. Check out Sound of Ages. If you like this episode, your feedback really helps drive what I do on the show. So uh, I got some feedback that said they really like having recordings of pieces, so I've tried to put more of those in. And as Sound of Ages records and performs more, we'll put more of those recordings on. Have big projects coming up in the future uh, with some of those things, so hopefully that uh, serves that. So if you, if you really like a certain thing that I do here on the show and you really want more of it, Please email soundofagesquire at gmail.com. Give a rating and a review, uh, and that will really help guide kind of the show's content to make it better and better because I really like hearing from you. If you are an expert or if you want to be a guest on the show, feel free to email as well. I'd love to have as many guests on as possible. You can Facebook message us. You can Instagram message us. Um, we check all those things regularly, so uh, feel free to write in and uh, be more active contributor to Early Music Monday, because that's what it's all about. And if you're interested in, in donating to Sound of Ages, to the podcast, it's all under the same organizational umbrella. We're a 501c3. Um, feel free. That's shameless pl- begging for money, which always feels really awkward, but it really helps uh, give us the resources to give you more. And if you want it to be something of value to you, you know, do again, like I said, write us, tell us what you want to hear and feel free to donate at soundofageschoir.com slash support. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Hopefully you like the episode. I love talking about that nitty gritty. It's awesome. Uh, we're going to have some, and with our guests on the show this year, we're going to try to get more into the nitty gritty of some of these pieces and some pieces that they love and, and, and go a little bit more in depth to the music itself. And, uh, while we also still kind of keep the context of talking about broader principles. So if you, if you like the show, please share it, give us a like and a review and a rating and a five stars, obviously, because I mean, come on. Uh, Be sure to check out Sound of Ages on all our social media sites and look for more content moving forward. And we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.